Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Encanto, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. disclaimer this is not an official disney podcast but all of these films are available to stream now on disney plus so come on watch along with us and let's learn together i'm film journalist ben travis and while i love nothing more than hanging around with my good buddy baymax i'm not your disneyversity lecturer no this week i'm an abandoned kitten left in the rain struggling to find a way to survive in the metropolis that is the disney catalogue as we watch through 60 films and counting strutting in to save me though is an animation academic who knows these mean streets like the back of his paws with all the sweet savoir faire you could ask for when it comes to the walt disney animation studios canon i am of course talking about dr sam summers our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you? Hey, I'm podcasting here. <laughs> He's in the New York spirit. <laughs> I think we are both very hyped up for this episode. There is an energy in this virtual room already. The way <laughs> when I texted you earlier on in the week saying I we plan to record this another day and I was like, I'm struggling to find time to get the film in and find the time to record and all of this you were like don't rush this one don't try and cram oliver and company into your day give oliver and company the time and respect that it deserves which we have now done and i totally see why it's a special one right it's a really really fun stupid movie (laughs) and i love it to bits i've said this before when you first pitched the idea of disneyversity the podcast this is one of the ones that just popped into my head of oh my god, I can't wait to do Oliver and Company. It's basically the whole reason that I said yes is so that eventually you could watch Oliver Company. You've never seen it before, right? No, never seen it before. This was totally new to me. And I basically barely heard of it. We'd never had this one on video. It's not one that anybody seems to talk about, although I have heard little bits here and there as we've been getting closer to this film get the sense that for the people who do know it, they love it. It's a bit of a cult classic, but it is very, very niche, it feels, within the Disney catalogue, even within the Dark Age, which is full of stuff that's less well-known. Yeah, there's not much that's been like written about this movie. It was hard to find information on it compared to even things like Basil and the Black Cauldron. There aren't any like Oliver and Company fan sites or anything online that I could find, which there usually are for these kinds of films. But... For me, this is my Robin Hood. You know, so many people have this kind of outsized, disproportionate love for Robin Hood because it just happened to be one they watched all the time when they were a kid. And I did watch Robin Hood, but for me, my random Disney movie that I only love so much because I watched it constantly is Oliver and Company. But I can't be the only one. It's something that me and my partner Lydia bonded over when we first met, actually. I mean, not when we very first met. It wasn't the first thing I said. (laughs) First date chat, you're like... Oliver and Company, yes or no? (laughs) But I do remember in her flat at uni 
in first year university, so when we're like 18, dancing around to Why Should I Worry. And, oh, uh... <laughs> that's so wholesome. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah, and she probably wouldn't remember. And <laughs> and if I was like, hey, Liz, remember when we bonded over Oliver and Company at uni when we first started going out? She'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but for me, that's that's a formative, that's a core memory. Yeah, in your inside out brain, that would be a little glowing <laughs> yellow orb. Oh, that's yeah. incredibly wholesome. But, but you grew up on this one. This is one that was part of your childhood then. Because yes, definitely. This film, so many things about this film it just says so much about adult Sam, the Sam that I've known for the last however many years, decade plus. Everything about you, I can see why this would basically be your ultimate Disney movie. So it's it's funny that this probably shaped you as a human being to an extent. That's interesting. <laughs> I'd love to I'd love to hear the details there. But this was I think it's because I remember this being re released and this came out on VHS. And there was a bit of a push behind it in the UK in like probably 97-ish, something like that. And I specifically remember there were um, McDonald's toys for it. There was like a little Fagan on his little trike and a Dodger and you could flip his sunglasses up and down and a T-Tour riding on the back of a taxi. Um, I had all of those and I had the VHS. And I think it did come to cinemas, but I don't remember seeing it in cinemas. But I do remember watching it all the time, getting obsessed with the songs and even getting excited when the trailer came on before other movies Oliver and Company man big hype (laughs) (laughs) and well the other big thing about this film is that it marks the end of the dark age we're through the other side of the dark age Sam I kind of can't believe it it's sort of flown past I've really loved doing this podcast and going through the eras that I've known nothing about so even though the package era was like a strange time for the studio watching those films I never really would have seen otherwise was a fascinating thing and, and a big part of the history of the studio and I feel like the dark age these last 20 years going through the 70s and the 80s it's been such a transformational time for the studio, and I do feel like Oliver and Company is a massive encapsulation of that. Yeah, I, I kind of can't believe we're here already. Yeah, I mean, and Oliver and Company is a really good film to be the last film in the Dark Age, if that makes sense, because I think some people even consider this as the first Disney Renaissance film because all of those pieces are basically now in place. Katzenberg and Eisner are there, you've got people like Glenn Keane working on the animation, and you've even got Howard Ashman writing one of the songs for this movie, and he's going to be a very major factor in the success of those early movies. But at the same time, it is such an odd film, and especially for Disney, there are things that Disney's doing here that they wouldn't really do again for a long, long time, and definitely not for the duration of the 1990s kind of core renaissance era. So, yeah, very much a transitional work, but what a transition. Yeah, it's a really fun, really exciting one. Before we get into it, something we need to kind of wrap up from our last episode, which was Basil the Great Mouse Detective, or just The Great Mouse Detective, to give it its official title. We had Nick Dissemblian joining us, that was so much fun, and we spent quite a lot of time at the beginning of the episode talking about Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, And then, what, hours after we finish recording that episode, out comes the trailer for Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, the new movie by The Lonely Island, featuring John Mulaney and Andy Samberg as the voices of Chip and Dale. Can't remember which one's doing which, but those are the two voices. Uh, And it looks like an absolutely bonkers meta movie about Chip and Dale being sort of former celebrities who have fallen on hard times and they were thriving in the 80s and now no one remembers who Chip and Dale are and 
it looks fun, right? What are your feelings on the Chippendale trailer? Yeah, deeply obsessed with the Chippendale trailer. <laughs> I lost about two hours of my life to going through that trailer frame by frame. I can't tell if this is going to be a good movie or a bad movie, but it's definitely going to be interesting, right? And that's the main thing for me. I like interesting movies, and this is that. It's got a wild number of cameos in it from both Disney products and non-Disney products. Like, Roger Rabbit's there. That kind of makes sense. Roger Rabbit, Porky Pig, and Chip and Dale all in one frame. It's not Porky Pig, Is that not Porky Pig? No, it's one of the three little pigs from... um, the Disney Three Little Pigs Silly Symphony show. Right, because I was there going, oh, this is crossing the streams with Warner Brothers as well. That's like an extra level of IP and, and cross-studio yeah. handshaking. So, but that's not Porky Pig. Okay, I hold my hands up. They are crossing streams, though. You've got um, the My Little Ponies are in there, so that's pretty nuts. And you've got MC Scat Cat from a series of uh, Paula Abdul music videos from the 1980s he's in there uh, i'm sure there's there's lots of other cameos or that rather there's lots of animated characters that i do not recognize whatsoever and i haven't even been able to find any kind of breakdown articles i haven't looked for a few days but breakdown articles on the internet saying like these are all the cameos in the chippendale rescue rangers trailer so i can't tell if there's loads of original generic animated characters in there or just stuff that's so deep that even i don't recognize it which is like you are plumbing the depths if that's the case. My current theory is that a lot of the animated characters in there are just new random animated characters and it's in this world where there are regular live action people and animals and whatnot and there's also animated people and characters and all those things and some of those animated people are famous they are famous for being in cartoons but some of them are just normal humans who happen to be animated that is my theory but this trailer looks I like wild that. i like that idea <laughs> there's so much we could talk about with this there's the fact that dale has had cgi surgery to make him 3d and chip is still 2d except he's not actually 2d it's a 3d model that's been cell shaded to look 2d and we can tell disney we can tell i can tell <laughs> And then they go to, like, the Uncanny Valley at the end. With the and cats. the cats from, from cats. cats. What the hell? It's the same effects studio that made Cats as well, so they've probably just got some of those knocking about. Do you know the thing that blew my mind the last time I watched this trailer? And I promise, listeners, we will stop talking about this in a minute. But this this conversation needed to happen, especially... I mean, Nick even mentioned when we were talking about Chip and Dale last time, he was like, oh yeah, and I was obsessed with one of them wearing the Indiana Jones costume. And there's literally a gag about that in the trailer. But at the end of the trailer, when you have the like weird Uncanny Valley, Seth Rogen, medieval dwarf guy, I was so distracted by the hilarious Seth Rogen stoner laugh, which I can never get enough of, that it wasn't until the most recent time I watched that trailer that I realised in the background of that very final shot is a doorway from Monsters, Inc. <laughs> what that. is this film going to be we're gonna have to tackle that on an upcoming episode but yeah i feel like we manifested that trailer into being with our last episode exactly i'm now very frightened slash excited that as soon as we stop recording this podcast there's going to be some kind of mad meta reimagining of oliver and company announced (laughs) live action oliver and company with real life dogs Anyway, that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register is complete, and it's time for class to begin. So this time, we're heading ever closer to a big old Disney rebirth with 1988's Dickens-inspired bopfest, Oliver and Company. 
Okay then, Sam, we established that this one is a bit of a cult classic. It's one that not many people seem to know these days or doesn't have that ongoing reputation. And yet, as we're about to learn, it is a very familiar story to an extent. A twist on a familiar story, twist being the operative word. What can you tell us about the plot of Oliver and Company for anyone who hasn't seen it? And guys, I can't stress this enough. You should watch this movie. It's 69 minutes long. That is 69 minutes well spent. But if you haven't got round to it, here's what you need to know. Yeah, I'm glad that you said it's it's a twist and a twist and a twist because the making of documentary that I watched for this, which is from like 1988, was like, this new Disney movie is a new twist on an old twist. Oliver Twist. Yes. <laughs> they were aware of that gag. So, once upon a time in New York City, a stray kitten named Oliver is taken in by Dodger, leader of a gang of thieving street dogs. While the dog's owner, Fagan, struggles to pay his debts to a villainous loan shark called Sykes, Oliver is adopted by a wealthy girl named Jenny. When these worlds collide, Oliver must help save Jenny from Sykes and choose between his two adopted families. And I realised when I was writing that out just before we started, this is like the most complicated plot for a Disney movie maybe ever. (laughs) It's one of the shortest Disney movies that we've watched, but there are so many moving parts, so many different factions and characters... It's hard to summarise, really. Yeah, and as I think we'll talk about when we get into the main discussion, it pulls you in different directions as a viewer. There's a point in the middle where you're like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be rooting for here to happen. But as you said, this is Oliver Twist with a twist, and the twist is that it's basically not Oliver Twist. (laughs) The twist (laughs) is that it starts off like Oliver. You've got an orphan left on the street called Oliver, and you have those characters with the familiar names, but ultimately what the actual plot of this film is has nothing to do with Oliver. Nothing at all. And Ben, you know Oliver Twist because you were Oliver Twist, right? I was Oliver in our year six production of Oliver at school, which I believe cut out all of the nasty stuff which hey this film does as well i'm sure we'll get to that in discarded but yeah Yeah, that's perfect casting by the way if you don't mind saying i think you'd be a great oliver even even now (laughs) i did make a din lady cry with my rendition of where is love so can you can you give us a blast no (laughs) no you can't no i'll tell you what and this is another insight for the viewers whenever we get together we do karaoke And there's always at least two Oliver songs come out every single time because my partner Lid always breaks out as long as he needs me and stops the show. And we always do, as a group, consider yourself. (laughs) Ben, you've never busted out Where Is Love in those sessions, but we're having one in like a week. Yeah, less than a week from us recording this, we will be together on a four-hour karaoke session, which may now include Where Is Love and also may include I got sweets of fear. come on we've got to bust that out okay back to the show <laughs> I think this is going to be the tone of this whole episode of just pure chaos so it struck me this film comes out in 1988 uh, and Disney seems to be back on a bit of a roll again Black Cauldron was what 85 Basil the Great Master Detective was 86 this comes out two years after that tee us up for what's happening with the studio before the renaissance really kicks in it feels like they're kind of gaining ground again yeah so great house detective was something of a success i think the headlines were usually that it got beaten by an american tale but in its own right it was successful and also we've got jeffrey katzenberg who was initially dismissive of animation but now partly because of that movie's success and partly because 
it's just been spending more time around animators in the animation studio is starting to really see the potential for the medium and as was said last time mainly the potential of the medium for Brandon and the creation of IP to be exploited in merchandising in the parks but while he was exploring the animation studio, he discovered the vast archives of material produced during the Walt era, including detailed notes from Walt on every aspect of animation production, and he got quite into it, and he started to maybe think of himself as many people have in the past and as other people would in the future as, oh, maybe I could be the next Walt Disney and I could really do something with this studio and with this medium. So the animation studio, even though it had been moved out from its original building and into this warehouse in Glendale it got boosted from 160 people to more than 600 and Katzenberg committed to making one animated movie a year and that's something they announced to the press and that's something that Walt wanted to do right back in the golden age we've got Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, Bambi on the trot and it was only the war really that put a stop to that so Katzenberg's trying to do what Walt didn't get the chance to do and make a movie every year with two or three projects underway at different stages of production at any given time. So it's not just that we have these kind of great creative minds and places, you say, we're approaching the Alan Menken, Howard Ashman era of songwriting. We have the sort of studio heads who would be spearheading the Renaissance era, but also they've just massively upped the amount of people working on these films so they can just bash through stuff and and churn out all these things back to back to back. Yeah, and, you know, Katzenberg is, at times a very gifted businessman he's a guy who will see as we go on and if, especially if you think about this is the man who eventually gave us dreamworks and shrek he has very specific ideas about what makes a hit movie it involves stars it involves a contemporary sensibility it involves a degree of like edginess and hipness and his idea of what that is is not always on the money but he has a formula and you can see him start to apply it i think especially in oliver and company he still hadn't quite managed to endear himself to the animation team. Animators, you can find caricatures that they've drawn of him from this point in time, including one of him urinating on a storyboard while demanding more Diet Coke. <laughs> wow, what an image. Yeah, He's a Diet Coke guy. Every so often you hear about someone like Jeffrey Katzenberg or like Donald Trump as well, who are just Diet Coke guys, and they're always asking for Diet Coke, and there needs to be someone on hand to give them a Diet Coke. <laughs> I don't know, that just conjures a very specific kind of person to me. We've got Disneyversity Legends, we've got Disneyversity Abominations, we've got TDLFs, and now we've got Diet Coke guys to add into that mix. <laughs> okay. Let me know, listeners, if you know of any other Diet Coke guys. Uh, Katzenberg, he had two catchphrases during this era, one of which was, get me a Diet Coke, and the other of which was, do you want to win the Academy Award or the Bank of America Award? This is like peak 1980s America, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't don't think that's a real award. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so when did they decide to take this formula, this Katzenberg formula, this Diet Coke plus money plus stars plus musicians equals more money, and apply that to Oliver Twist? Had the studio attempted anything Dickensian before? Obviously, we had Mickey's Christmas Carol not too long ago in in this era. But yeah, how, how did they get to this version of Oliver Twist and deciding to even tackle one of those stories? Well, during the production of Basil, relatively early on in the Eisner and Katzenberg tenure, 
they held what they called a gong show. Do you know what I mean by the gong show? All I know is that that is like an American game show and that recently there was a revival of the gong show hosted by some weird presenter that no one had ever heard of that turned out to be Mike Myers in a costume. <laughs> that, that's my yeah, entire reference for the gong doing show. Doing an English accent, yeah. Well, there's the bit on The Simpsons where Homer and Barney go on the gong show. <laughs> <laughs> they got more gongs than the breakdancing robot or something. <laughs> so the, the gong show, it was like a comedy talent show where if you were bad, the judges would hit a gong and you had to leave right so they did that but for animation pitches they got all the animators in to pitch ideas first up to pitch is ron clements okay director of or co-director of great mouse detective director of many great disney features to come and he says the little mermaid gong oh they didn't like little mermaid that's getting gonged. Well, they just did Splash as well with Tom Hanks. So it's like, oh, that's too similar. We don't need another mermaid picture. Okay, then Clements, he's wounded, but he comes back. He's got a new idea. He says, Treasure Island in space. Gong! I thought you were going to say with Muppets then. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they would get there. Well, they would get to both of those, but for now, Treasure Island space, not happening. So another writer steps up, a guy called Pete Young, and he says... Obviously, probably quite nervous. Some great ideas have just been gonged. And he says, Oliver Twist with dogs. And Katzenberg says, I love it. <laughs> so it went, it went straight into development. And uh, apparently Katzenberg had been wanting to do a live-action Oliver Twist modern-day musical for a long time. And he's, he's a New York guy. He's a real New Yorker. So he had some kind of affinity for this idea already. And these two things... I don't know, I guess we're just simpatico, and he was like, okay, we're doing this, we're doing it as a musical, we're getting some massive pop stars in, and it's going to be a smash. Okay, so young Pete is the guy who pitches this, but then the director of this film is George Scribner, and I have one Mm -hmm. question for you, Sam. Who the hell is George Scribner? Where has this guy come from? He had worked for Hanna-Barbera, he worked on shows like The Smurfs, he worked on both Transformers and Gorbots, the less good Transformers, not many people can make that claim, but he also had worked on some adult animated features as well, like Heavy Metal, which is sort of a hard rock fantasia for adults, and interestingly, American Pop, which is a movie by Ralph Bakshi, who's sort of the premier adult animator in America, and he'd had a big hit with Fritz the Cat, which was the first X-rated animation. He later did The Lord of the Rings, so we talked about his influence when we looked at Black Cauldron. And Bakshi basically makes two different kinds of movies. He makes dark fantasy movies, and he makes movies about Jewish people living in New York, and their kind of trials and travails and american pop is one of those it's the history of american popular music told through a dynasty of jewish songwriters growing up in new york and i think you can really see the influence of bakshi's new york movies on oliver and company obviously it's a very sanitized version of that but i think the fact that scribner worked on american pop is very interesting so he was just the right guy for this job he had the right sensibilities and the right artistic outlook i want to bring up a couple of other names uh, that actually came up in the very end credits of this movie that stopped me in my tracks the animation screenplay is attributed to jim cox not particularly interested in him but the other names that came up timothy j disney i presume that is a disney family member yeah that's roy disney's son Right, so we have more Disneys in the Disney company. But the other one that came up is James Mangold. Is that the James Mangold? As in director of Logan, director of Walk the Line, director of Ford v Ferrari, currently in production, soon to be released, Indiana Jones 5, director James Mangold? Is that that Mangold? 
Yeah, it's the same James Mangold. This is his first film. This is his first oh. screenplay credit. I don't know how he got there. <laughs> And I don't know how that led to Girl Interrupted, but I do know that this was his first <laughs> screenplay credit. Well, if I get to interview him for Indiana Jones 5 or whatever's coming oh, up, my please. first question is going to be, James Mangold, how did you get involved in Oliver and Company? And was it the best experience of your entire life? But we have to talk about some of the other people behind the scenes here, because as you mentioned, Pop Megastars was part of the brew in this film. And a couple of names that jump out. I mean, I normally don't know who has done what on the soundtrack, but since watching this film, yes, I have been listening to the songs because they are so good. Uh, And you have big names like, obviously, Billy Joel and Huey Lewis behind some of the songs here. So uh, what can you tell me about the approach to the songs here, to the soundtrack? And it's not just one big pop star. You have each song kind of done by another big name. Yeah, and you've got a bunch of stars. You've got Billy Joel, you've got Huey Lewis, you've got Ben Midler as well, and then you've got people like uh, Dan Hartman wrote Why Should I Worry, and you've got people like Barry Manilow who wrote Perfect Isn't Easy for Bette Midler, who's his regular collaborator. So the songwriters are huge, the singers are huge, and basically, if you look at interviews with people like Billy Joel and Bette Midler, it's like, oh, why did you get involved with Oliver and Company? It's the same answer people always give to this very day, which is, I wanted to make something that my kids could watch. That's all anybody says. But, man, I'm glad they did, because... I love Billy Joel so much. I'm a huge (laughs) Billy Joel fan. I find it really hard to explain why, but I've got a fascination with Billy Joel. It's because Billy Joel basically writes musical theatre songs. That's what I love about Billy Joel. There's a real silliness and a performativity to what he does as a musician. It's like if Bruce Springsteen had written Hairspray or something, right? (laughs) Oh, I need that now. I need that in my life. That's Billy Joel's whole vibe, and he's always playing a character. It's not like David Bowie or something where it's like, I'm an alien now. It's just, oh, I'm a guy from the 50s on this album, or, oh, on this album I'll do an Italian accent sometimes, you know? It's... (laughs) It's it's this very low-key theatricality to Billy Joel's music, which just obsesses me. And also the fact that he's very much of a particular time and place. And this is a movie that is of the same very particular time and place. And they go together so well. Completely. I mean, we're going to do a deep dive on the songs when we get into the main discussion of the film. But what I said before about the fact that this film feels like an entire encapsulation of you as a human being, a big part of that is that it starts with like 80s soft rock that I can imagine you listening to on a yacht, in one of your yacht shirts, living your best life. Yeah, so much of that comes down to the music. So anyway, on that note, literally, should we get into this? Should we head back to 1980s New York, strut down the street with a a string of sausages around our neck? Absolutely, (laughs) puzzlutely. Let's go. As we said before, I had not seen this film until watching it for the podcast, and one of the things that stood out to me so much is, as we've already teed up, the way that it evokes late 80s New York City, this being a completely, totally contemporary Disney movie in a way that kind of no others had been. We had 60s London in 101 Dalmatians. We've had bits of 70s city stuff, but this is so 80s, Sam. This might be the most 80s movie I have ever seen. Everything is angular, everything is modern. The way the animation looks, the way the whole soundtrack kicks off with this, as I said, very 80s soft rock, yacht rock vibe. It's so refreshing seeing a Disney movie like this. I'd never seen a Disney film like this before. 
That's why I love it. That is that is the core of what obsesses me about this film. I think, as an adult at least, it's the fact that I'm, I love ephemera. I love things that are so specific to the time in which they were made and which have just been completely forgotten and left there. And this is the only Disney movie, bar maybe some of the package stuff, that does that pretty much ever. They make such an effort to keep their movies timeless and that's part of their strategy because these movies get re-released all the time and Snow White has been a hit and 101 Dalmatians and Jungle Book have been hits like three, four times over by the time Oliver and Company comes out. It's always been their strategy. And that is completely at odds with the Katzenberg sensibility, with the big Hollywood CEO sensibility that the Disney company is now being imbued with. And that's where you get something like Oliver and Company. You know, we've had contemporary music stars, we've had jazz in Disney movies before, but, you know, it was said when we talked about The Jungle Book, jazz had been around for long enough by that point. I suppose there's the Beatles gags in The Jungle Book as well, but... Everything about this movie feels like it could not have been made a year either side of 1988, basically. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to get into our deep dive on the songs yet, but the opening song here is It's Always Once Upon a Time in New York City. And you're watching it like, that's a, an interesting sentiment, but it's it's not Once Upon a Time. It's very specifically the 80s. It's very specifically at the time of release now. And I think that's an interesting connection that it's taking this very typical Disney trope of Once Upon a Time, that fairy tale language, and associating that with the present day, being like, Once Upon a Time doesn't have to mean the past, it doesn't have to mean some distant fantasy land, Once Upon a Time can be New York City. I like the idea that, you know, how all those old Disney movies open with a, a live-action book opening up, and it's like, Once Upon a Time, this should be like a gatefold LP of, like, adult contemporary music, yes. and it opens up, and there's, like, Huey Lewis smiling on the interior <laughs> cover, it's like, Once Upon a Time in New York City. That's how this movie should have opened. But it struck me as a weird, not missed opportunity, but just a choice that, considering this is based very loosely on Oliver Twist, that they didn't do the whole opening book thing. It feels like a very intentional move away from, as you say, those more classical, timeless tropes into something that feels much more modern and contemporary. And I think that sense of modernity, it's not just the visual and audible stuff happening in this film. It's the energy of the whole thing. It has a vibrancy and an energy to it that does feel very New York. I don't know, it's something intangible. You can't really put your fingers on what exactly creates that. But it has just a vibe? <laughs> That's like a weak way of describing it, but there is such a vibe to this movie. It's New York as myth, isn't it? Mm. And us as, obviously, Brits. I've never been in New York. Have you ever been in New York? I have, just for a couple of days. Uh, it was like a two-day, three-day trip where uh, I made sure every bit of free time I had, it was like technically a work trip, uh, but every time it was like, oh, we've got a couple of hours before we're doing our next thing, I'd be like, I'm going out. There's a record shop down here that I want to go and see. I'm going to walk to Rockefeller Plaza. So I've seen bits of New York. It was all Manhattan-based. It's so strange going to a place that you've kind of seen your whole life on screens and kind of know through pop culture, but also have never been to before. And it did have this exciting, vibrant energy and all that iconography that is very much there in Oliver and Company. The smell of hot dogs and yellow taxis on the street and just hustle and bustle everywhere. You, you really got that sense. I mean, I love art from New York and I love art about New York. And that's because it's a city which has always been very seemingly obsessed with mythologizing itself 
and create an, you know, like a fairy tale of New York, uh, if, if I may. And, and that's something, obviously, the Walt Disney Company has always done as well in the same way that, you know, Walt used to mythologize his own childhood and, and Disneyland represents, oh, there's a mythologized Old West and a mythologized future. And this is Disney taking that approach and applying it to New York. And that's why I think the Once Upon a Time opening is so significant because this is modern New York, but it's myth as well. And it's a fairy tale as well. And I think that comes through in lots of different ways, some good, some bad that I'm sure we'll touch on. But this opening shot, this flight over the island of Manhattan reminded me of nothing less than the first flight over Neverland in Peter Pan where you see that island emerge from the distance surrounded by water. It's the same thing. It's, yeah. a, it's a fairy tale world. Except here, we immediately start to fade in to the skyscrapers and we see Kodak, Sony, Coke, McDonald's everywhere, <laughs> like advertisements for several brands which no longer exist, but several which still do. And I think the people that you see, the evocation of the people living in New York City as well, like you get that guy straight from the beginning who looks exactly like Patrick Bateman from American Psycho. He's like peak 80s guy with his 80s hair and his big long coat. Yeah, obviously this came out years before American Psycho was even written. Yeah. And yet it's still soundtracked by a Huey Lewis song. And that's too weird a coincidence for me. So you've got that guy, you've got the sort of hip hop guy as well on the street, the guy listening to what then was like the most contemporary music you could imagine. And you get that lovely shot of like Oliver vibing to the beat there. And the hot dog guy... He looks like a newspaper cartoon. The way that he is drawn is totally different to the Patrick Bateman guy, but they are all these evocations of these different people all living together in this shared space. So I think, okay, right, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm starting with the hot dog guy. Uh, One of my favourite characters in this movie, Louis, the hot dog guy. He does look like a newspaper cartoon. He looks like a Ralph Bakshi character, to be honest, like one of his caricatures. Like I say, I love art about New York, and I really love New York stereotypes, my favourite of which being, you know when when people are just really walking here? You know, know, some guys are just really walking here, and Louis, the hot dog guy, is walking here harder than anyone has walked here ever before. His first lines are, Hey, excuse me, can't you see I'm pushing something here? (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes, The best hot dogs in New York! Um, He's voiced by, I know we're talking about Transformers briefly, he's voiced by Frank Welker, who played Megatron, basically using his Megatron voice with an accent. If you listen to that back, it's just Megatron with with an Italian-American accent. So that's, yeah, God love Louis. But yeah, so it's interesting, the first three people that we meet, the first three people that Oliver interacts with are an African-American guy, an Asian-American child, and Louis, who's obviously... Italian-American, you might say an Italian-American stereotype. So it's setting New York up as this diverse melting pot city, introducing us through Oliver to people of different races and ethnicities which make up this town. And I would say if there's a criticism to be made, it's that as a movie it doesn't necessarily follow through on that. The main human characters we encounter are all pretty white and in crowd scenes most of the characters tend to be white so in as much as this is a fairy tale version of new york it's a fairy tale version of a very specific kind of new york that only really pays lip service to the actual diversity of the city and its culture yeah you're right especially um the the main human characters who come in later in the film it then recenters things around a very white upper class 
perspective. But I think in terms of talking about the energy of 80s New York and the whole style of this film, you were mentioning there the art of the time, and I think that's something that comes through in this film totally. At the very end of The Great Mouse Detective, we had that kind of groundbreaking 3D sequence, and we get a lot of 3D textures here. And it really struck me, not just in those 3D moments, but in even in a lot of the 2D stuff, the way that this film looks, the way that it's designed... In the 60s, we had a lot of that real, like, psychedelic influence. We had those kind of wavy lines, we had a lot of bright, splashy colours. Here, everything is very angular. I kind of don't know how else to describe it. It's just everything is on edge, everything feels very sleek in a way that feels totally in contrast to what you think of as 60s and 70s psychedelia. Right, because it's a city, it's a different kind of environment, and that requires different kinds of techniques and so there's 11 minutes of computer assisted imagery here from the buildings to almost all of the vehicles that you see and lots of cgi and that climactic chase at the end some um, computer generated environments and it, interesting quote from george scribner who said computers can't do emotion and characters and that's obviously speaking of the state of the art at this point in time which by for example 1995 would have changed significantly he says computers can't do emotions and characters. They can't make Oliver move better, but they can do inanimate objects, which frees the animators to spend more time on flesh and blood creations. And because New York itself is in some respects another character in the picture, you never heard that one before. <laughs> the city is a character in the movie. I wonder if this is the first time anyone ever said this, because this is before, like, Sex and the City or whatever, but we wanted it to be realistic, not just static backgrounds. We wanted lots of movement and traffic. And this means that we get this sense that, okay, the computer is necessary to give the Disney treatment to the modern urban world and its angular buildings and its machinery. If we're doing a fairy tale world, if we're doing Snow White and it's full of foliage and thatched cottages and stuff, that's where hand-drawn animation comes in handy. But here, and I guess Big Ben is a gateway to that and the primitive form of technology located within that clock tower, this is what computer animation is built for. It's a modern technology to replicate a modern world. The other thing that I think is interesting though is that as much as it is very new and contemporary and cutting edge, at the same time it feels like it's reusing a bit of that technique from 101 Dalmatians in that certain things in the foreground are very rigid and then the backgrounds of this film are so painterly. The way that it evokes the New York skyline, everything happening in the sort of back frame has a kind of washed out painterly vibe to it that is such an interesting combination for me yeah it's exactly the same technique as they used on 101 dalmatians which is being brought back really they haven't used it for a while they do like a very detailed almost abstracted watercolor painting of the shape of the city and then all of the lines are xeroxed over it which gives it this modern look it gives it this sort of faded sense of nostalgia which is something that the film is i think deliberately trying to evoke again fairy tale version of new york city but it also gives it a bit of a grittiness which is something that you have to have and it's something that yeah is important to 101 dalmatians as well set in a modern day metropolis so we need to have some sort of texture to it some kind of tactility and the xerox process helps with that a lot so if that is the extra character of new york city in this movie Let's talk about some of the actual characters. Let's go straight in on Oliver, who we meet in this really heartbreaking montage, the very opening of the film, 
during the It's Always Once Upon a Time in New York City, and he's a kitten in a box, and no one picks him. All the other kittens get taken from the box. Is it $5 a kitten? What is the kitten exchange rate in this city? Uh, he is the last kitten left, and he is a kitten in a dog's world for the rest of the film. But coming to his rescue is the guy. The man. A character who I imagine would have been voiced by Phil Harris if this was slightly earlier in an era of Disney. He comes in with big Phil Harris energy is Dodger. And that combination of sweet, innocent Oliver and strutting in the way Dodger walks, the way he like swaggers into every scene, is just an amazing combo. He's a very, very cool dude. Uh, his catchphrase, absolutely, positively. You can hear that coming from Phil Harris, but that is, that's something I say. That's one of the Disney quotes that I use the most often in real life. Hey, absolutely, positively. And yeah, I mean, it's a great character. It's very much in the lineage of Thomas O'Malley, of The Tramp, these streetwise, stray animal characters whose job it is to introduce less experienced animal characters to the harshness of the metropolis. But it's got that 80s energy. It's got that Billy Joel energy, man. Billy Joel, who seems to have worn sunglasses during the entire voice recording process, which I'm a huge fan of. Well, are there lots of behind-the-scenes photos of him running lines with his sunnies on in the booth? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And he seems to have been very delighted by the whole idea. Uh, George Scribner says, we had a lot of fun in dialogue sessions with Billy. He was like a little kid. He loved the idea that he was doing a dog. It was the strangest idea in his head. <laughs> He's like, a dog as a human character in a movie? Whatever next? <laughs> I mean, of all the things that are groundbreaking about this film, the fact that it's animals at the heart of the story is possibly the least groundbreaking thing about it. <laughs> I mean, that's very Disney, isn't it? But yeah, it's this, this idea of Billy Joel. Like, so he's a dog, but he can talk? What? What is this? <laughs> what is this? So he's a magic dog? What? what I don't... I, what's my motivation? <laughs> That's not what Billy Joel sounds Is like. I was going to say, you're back in hot dog guy voice. <laughs> That's the same thing. But you're right. The thing that this totally reminded me of was Tramp. He is like updated Tramp for 80s New York. But I love the way that part of the way they characterize him being in step with 80s New York is that swagger that he is in tune physically to the beat of the city. And the beat of the city is something that's the part that feels new that is so specific to the 80s that uh, the idea as we said of hip-hop beats in the air and all the music that comes along with this film that is very like swaggery pop music that just is a lovely little way of kind of tying all of that stuff together yeah it's like he is new york like he is the embodiment of this version of new york the 80s version of new york the hustle and bustle of new york and it's like that's almost his superpower that he in the sequence which accompanies the song Why Should I Worry, which we're going to get to in more detail, he can just anticipate everything that's going to happen. Nothing takes him by surprise. He just swaggers through like a construction site or through traffic with no problem. He's so in tune with that world, it's like his superpower. And even just the way that he is described, does he describe himself as New York's coolest quadruped? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. His nickname is The Dodge. That's a thing. <laughs> Calls himself the Dodge sometimes. Oh, he's just so cool. I feel like they just... It's a tick list of everything in 80s culture that was cool. Even the fact that basically he has a scarf of hot dogs for half of this film. I feel like having a little scarf was a big thing in the 80s. Sunglasses <laughs> and a little scarf. I don't think I've said this on the podcast. I was showing you this before. I am wearing my Oliver and Company t-shirt, which has a very prominent Dodger 
with uh, the, the string of, of hot dogs wrapped around him. That's the life, man. That is. I don't want to get into the songs yet. We're building up to the songs, guys. But even in the sequence, Why Should I Worry? That moment where he's like rising up on the piano, but he's like playing the piano, flying through the air. What is better than that? A dog with a string of sausages around its neck, wearing sunglasses, playing the piano as it flies through the New York skyline. (laughs) There's just something amazing about that. The piano man himself. That's how Billy Joel used to do it. He wouldn't go on stage without... (laughs) 10 sausages it was in his rider i think the thing that's really interesting though in that dynamic is that there is a slightly more complex morality to this story right because you really love that chemistry between oliver and dodger oliver is this really naive character dodger is this like uber cool swaggery guy who is going to look after oliver he introduces him to the rest of their gang who are looked after by a human fagin which caught me off guard But later on in the film, you do want the best for Oliver. I think it really sets up right from the off. That All those shots of him in the box nearly being swept down a storm drain? Jesus Christ. You really want the best for this little ginger kitten. And ultimately the best is going to be Jenny, this human character who comes in in the second half of the film. This little girl who sees Oliver and immediately wants him, looks after him, can offer him a really good home. And as the plot kind of develops, you're there going, I don't know whether I'm supposed to want Oliver to end up with Dodger and live that good street life and have fun swaggering around the streets, or end up with Jenny living this very safe, cosy life. I feel like that gets smoothed out fairly quickly, but there was a maybe five or ten minute period in the middle of the film where I was like, intentionally, it's pulling the audience in two directions. You have these very different paths that he could follow that for me then tied into what the title of this film is it's oliver and company but who is the company that he is going to choose what what is the company that is going to be best for this guy yeah that's an interesting point because that's something that is never once at issue in oliver twist because well especially fagin but dodger to an extent and, and the rest of the gang are much more antagonistic characters much more unsavory characters in most versions of oliver twist So we're never really questioning whether we want Oliver to get out of that situation when he ends up adopted by some rich folk at the end of the story. We're never thinking, oh man, but I wish he was just still homeless, you know? Uh, It's not something that would occur. But in Oliver and Company, Dodger and the gang are so appealing that we do just want to spend more time with them and we'll want him to, I don't know, have a fun life instead of hanging out with this awful child. I mean, okay, so here we go. (laughs) Oh, are you anti-Jenny? I mean, you're so pro-Dodger that you have to be anti-Jenny to an extent. (laughs) I am anti-sickly sweet little girls in animated movies of the 70s and 80s. This is a known stance of mine. I am not a fan of Penny Jenny's sister from another mother in The Rescuers. <laughs> to this day, I'm not sure if I'm getting the names the right way around. Those characters look exactly the same. That was the first thing I wrote in my notes when Jenny turned up. I was like, this looks like the girl from The Rescuers. Well, there's a version of this where it's a sequel. It was an idea at one point to make her literally Penny from The Rescuers. Oh, wow. And this is who she's being adopted by. And this is the next step in her story. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. I do like the idea of 
making these movies into more of a cinematic universe. Or you could even imagine that the people who adopted her misheard her and said, oh, what's your name? Oh, yeah, Penny. Oh, Jenny. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll call you Jenny. It's like, okay, I'm not, I don't care. So maybe that's canon. I don't know. The DCU, the Disney Cinematic Universe. Yeah, the Disney Orphan Cinematic Universe. I don't like them. I don't like any characters like this. I don't like the performance. God bless them. I don't like the performances that these little girls give. There's a version of this character in um, All Dogs Go to Heaven as well. I just don't like spend time with them. There's a version of this character in the original Tom and Jerry movie. Just too sickly sweet for me. The song that she sings is atrocious. Yeah. It ruins this film's record of bangers. Sickly is the word for the Jenny song. I can't, I, I can't even remember what it is. But her playing it on the piano and... Oh, we'll always be always friends, be, be the best company. company. Yeah. <laughs> no enthusiasm for that. <laughs> yeah, if I was picking my friends based on how good their music taste was, I'm going with Piano Man every time. <laughs> what I do think is interesting, though, is that we were tweeted a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so Alexandra Tran on Twitter posted, Nothing teaches structure better than a 90s Disney animated movie. Luke Burgess replied and tagged us in saying, we're nearing this period, Disney University, what are your thoughts? And so talking about structure with this movie, I do think that we're starting to see the beginnings of a really tight but obvious three-act structure here, in that it feels like there's a very definitive point where Act 1 of Oliver and Company ends. So you've had Oliver living his rough life on the streets, you've had Dodger come in, all cool, stealing the film, acting as the ultimate mentor to Oliver to try and kind of get himself together, get stuff from the streets. You have him introduced to all the rest of the dogs and you have the introduction of Sykes. You have the introduction of stakes of what is at play here that Fagin has to get the money for Sykes and that the dogs are doing their crime stuff to kind of solve that. And you have this lovely little finale to Act 1, which is about maybe 25 minutes, half an hour into the film, of Fagin reading a story for the dogs, Oliver in his lap, buzzing off this story, all curled up with Dodger, falling asleep, this really cosy little shot. You have your characters, you have your setting, you have your plot and your stakes really clearly established, and then the second act begins, which is how are they going to get the money for Sykes? Who should Oliver be with? The introduction of Jenny as that complicating factor. So it just struck me as interesting watching this film that we are approaching that really, really clean, super direct three-act storytelling structure. It is very clean. It is very tight. But I also think it's very short. So that tautness means that we don't get enough time. And I've said this about a lot of Disney movies in the past as well we don't get enough time developing those relationships, really. So this is a movie where Oliver is constantly meeting people and then forming attachments to them very, very quickly, or they form attachments to him very, very quickly. Like, this whole movie takes place in, like, maybe two days, three days, and we've got Jenny immediately ready to go and confront a gangster (laughs) to get this cat back that she just met, you know? We need more time with those relationships. We need the thing to take place over a longer stretch diegetically as well. Because, you know, Oliver and Dodger feel like the core relationship of this movie, but how often do they actually interact with each other? 
there's not a great deal of it. And I just think we needed we needed one more scene of them picking pockets or two. That's why Fagan <laughs> says you've got to pick a pocket or two because two would give us more time to establish the status quo. And we needed a little bit more time with Jenny. We'll get a montage during her song of times they spent together, but we need a little bit more than that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We need a little bit more time to establish all those relationships. But okay, let's get into the rest of the characters here. So I, I mentioned before, I was surprised that Fagin was a human character. This is a world kind of like the Rescuers and Basil, where there's like animal world and human world all happening side by side. Uh, Sykes is a human character as well, a very threatening, as you say, gangster, loan shark kind of guy. But the characters who feel like they're the ones you want to spend time with are the rest of the gang. You have the British bulldog, you have the, well, let's face it, outright Mexican stereotype Chihuahua Tito. And who who are the others, Sam? This is your domain. Okay, there's Francis, the Shakespearean bulldog. There's Einstein, who I guess is the dumb one. There's Rita, who is Dodger's, I guess, semi-love interest. Well, she's the female, she's the smurfette of the gang, I suppose, the one female character. And they've got, yeah, a decent range of personalities for you to latch onto and pick your favourites. I mean, some of them get less to do. Einstein doesn't get loads to do. He's just kind of dumb. Tito's a bit rough. I'm a big fan of Cheech Marin. Anywhere he pops up, the Mexican-American comedian who plays this character of Cheech and Chong fame... And, you know, he improvised a lot of his lines as Tito, so I think a lot of the characterization here has emerged from his comedic persona. But at the same time, you know, he's this kind of randy, criminally inclined Mexican guy. There are stereotypes in there, and it's something that people have complained about with regards to this movie, so it is something we'll have to raise. Yeah, it did strike me that within their schemes, he is the one who does the bulk of the actual, like, criminal stuff, the crime bits... Uh, well, yeah. uh, the people act as lookout or as distractions, and he's like, I'll steal the car, or I'll bite the wires, whatever that <laughs> means. Yeah, he's got the loosest morals out of any of the characters. And I think, sort of similarly to the Crows in Dumbo, he's in a way one of the most likeable and memorable characters from the movie. He gets a lot of the comedy and a lot of the reviews from the time flagged him up as the most exciting character, some of the best character animation. And I think all of that can be true while also acknowledging that this is a stereotype of the kind that feels somewhat uncomfortable today. I mean, they're a solid gang of characters. I do think they're all just so outshone by Dodger, who is just the Mm -hmm. most charismatic and magnetic thing in the whole film. Yeah, what is your take on Fagin, then, being a human character with this pack of dogs? I I guess if you're going to have to set up Sykes as a human character who wants human money for human reasons, then you need Fagin to be a human character because it wouldn't make sense for a human character to be trying to, like, extort dogs. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Sykes didn't have to be a human either. It would have followed the book a bit more closely if, apart from the fact that they're all dogs, they were all dogs. And Sykes and Fagin had that more direct relationship with uh, Pickpocket and with Oliver. And because Sykes here doesn't really care much about Oliver, he's just a means to an end for him. But I I think Fagin works. I think he's funny. I think he's likeable. He's clownish. 
He's he's the most likable Fagin that's ever been put on screen. I mean, the the Ron Moody version from the musical film is is likable, but he's villainous. This is the most heroic Fagin that we've we've dealt with, I think. And yeah, he's he's friendly. He really loves his dogs. I love when he reads the bedtime story to the dogs. That's so cute, and you want him to succeed, which is also important because original Fagin from the book, you, you wouldn't care less if he's going to be hung, which is how he ends up in the original. The thing that struck me most about this Fagin is that he has a Mickey Mouse watch, Sam. Such a Tracy Beaker vibe, by the way. If you grew up reading Tracy Beaker, she's always talking about the Mickey Mouse watch with the arms that point at the time. This made me really want a Mickey Mouse watch. Do you have one? I don't have a Mickey Mouse watch. I used to have a Mickey Mouse wall clock when I was a kid. Oh, still with the arms during the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, okay, so this is vaguely related, but the best story about the Mickey Mouse watch is that there is a TV special from this era where Michael Eisner has a Mickey Mouse watch and he's hanging out with Mickey Mouse who has a Michael Eisner watch. Oh, can you still get a Michael Eisner watch? <laughs> yeah, you have never been able to get a Michael Eisner watch and believe me, I have tried. <laughs> Anybody who makes like random bootleg pop culture stuff, make a Michael Eisner watch, please. <laughs> You'd have two guaranteed sales over here. But with Sykes... I love Sykes' introduction. I love his really ominous 3D car. You get this incredible shot when he first rocks up with, let's point out, the Doberman license plates. You have this really attention-grabbing shot that goes all the way along the front and the side of the car, using the spectacle of this new 3D animation to build up the threat of this guy and how big and menacing his car looks. Similar to Cruella de Vil's rotoscoped car in 101 Dalmatians. Totally, especially when we get into the sort of action finale of this film, the 3D cars driving along and the way that that barrels into frame and takes up space and offers physical threat felt massively 101 Dalmatians, especially because it's a human menacing dogs. If I have a favourite interaction, though, between the gang of dogs and Sykes, it has to be as we're approaching the finale of the film when they have to go and get Jenny. Jenny's been kidnapped by Sykes and they have to go and get her back. And they rock up to his, I don't know, weird industrial HQ, whatever that's supposed to be, some weird abandoned warehouse where Sykes is shacked up. And the dogs form the silhouette of a pizza man outside of Sykes's door. That was a great little jape. Yeah, and Sykes, this very frightening gangster man who, it has been established, is in the business of, like, breaking people's knuckles and putting them in cement <laughs> shoes and all that, is just, hey, I didn't order a pizza. <laughs> just very easily fooled by this pile of dogs ringing the doorbell. I think if anybody tried to deliver me a pizza that I hadn't ordered, I would not question it. If it meant that if a pack of wild dogs ransacked my house, so be it. As they, if they actually bring pizza... I'd allow it. That's a bonus, pizza and dogs? Yeah. Win-win. While we're speaking of dogs, there's one dog that we haven't spoken about yet who's kind of tangential to the plot a bit. So Jenny in her house, she wants to adopt Oliver, cute little kitten, and there is one dog who is not happy about that. Well, many dogs, because Dodger ultimately wants to stay with Oliver. But Jenny has a posh, pampered poodle by the name of Georgette, who wants all the attention in the house, who doesn't want this little ginger kitten coming in and ruining what they already have. 
And this is the character who, well, as I was watching the film, I didn't know who did the voice, but I was like, wow, this is a big, like, Meryl Streep vibe. And I don't feel like I was that far off, because this is the Bette Midler character. Yeah, I mean, you said tangential to the plot, but she is central to my enjoyment of this movie. <laughs> I think, as okay, as much as I adore William Jewell, Bette Midler is the MVP of this movie in the voice performance sticks, I think. It's such a great performance. She is giving it everything. She is giving it barks and woofs and howls like an absolute pro. Just a furious, furious animal all the time. Angry at everything. Great character. Very Miss Piggy, I think. Really strong One other thing that I say all the time from this movie, which it doesn't come up very often, but whenever someone named Winston, (laughs) whenever someone is named Winston, I encounter a Winston, I always go, or think at least, Winston! 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 (laughs) Is that that not a standout line for you from this movie? It wasn't a standout line for me, but I just am admiring your Bette Midler impression. That's bang on. That is spot on. (laughs) She's a really fun character, and that kind of witty ballad that she gets to introduce herself, that big diva moment, I think that's why it made me think Meryl Streep, because it is sort of big classic Hollywood diva moment. And that song has a big kind of Broadway vibe as we get towards the Renaissance. Obviously, a lot of the songs here are, as you said, adult contemporary, smooth FM, soft rock vibes, whereas this song, it's a show tune, basically, and it's presented in that way. You have that really great shot, one of the big 3D shots of the film of of Georgette kind of walking down the spiral staircase towards the camera, breaking the fourth wall, all the birds flying around in formation like other dancers in the musical number... And at the end of that 3D shot, the camera kind of pans way out into this wide shot so you can see the whole staircase. And in that moment, not only was I thinking, this is a great song, great performance, really fun sequence, but like, how far have we come from Snow White to this point that we have this really technical shot of, yeah, it's it's a fourth wall breaking shot and a character singing straight into the camera with bits of 3D and bits of 2D and then a big pan out with all these different levels of perspective, we've come so far since the start of this podcast. It's it's fascinating, I think, to just see where we're at now and think about where we came from a few decades previously. Yeah, you can see them slowly building towards that Broadway musical style that so famously flowed through The Little Mermaid. And I mean, we'll talk about it more when we get there, but Disney have always been known for musicals. They weren't really known for Broadway musicals, and I think we're talking about this at the time, when you go back and actually watch the musical sequences from those movies, they're not as spectacular or exciting or poppy as maybe you would expect them to be if you're mainly familiar with the 90s stuff. And it's important to remember that that did not emerge from nowhere in The Little Mermaid. It's something that we're building to. They get there a bit with The World's Greatest Criminal Mind in Basil, and then this song in this movie with this character who is in so many ways just imported directly from the Broadway stage is that next important step towards the Broadway stylings of The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast etc. Yeah Uh, just one thing so you have this great Georgette song which then gives way to the sickly Jenny song which is like oh we'll always be good company whatever this little montage of Jenny basically adopting Oliver super quick she gets him a little name tag. How does she know that his name is Oliver? 
I don't think he's been named Oliver prior at this point. I think Whoa. she calls him Oliver. I'm just running through my mind. I don't think any of like the dogs or anyone call him Oliver before this. I think this is where he gets his name. That has blown my mind. I need to rewatch this film. Think. Okay. Wow. I was like, is she like psychic or something? Does she have a, a psychic connection to the cat who's like, my name is Oliver? Is, is it like Grogu? Is it like Ahsoka <laughs> finally communing with Grogu through the power of the Force? Being like, this child has a name, you know, use it. The other thing is that when Georgette kicks Oliver out of the house, helps the dog pack take him away from this life, Oliver is understandably pissed. He's like, wait, I had a house. I had the thing that I wanted this whole time. A very soft life with this person who loves me, with this little girl who's going to look after me. I think that's the moment where you realise Oliver needs to end up with Jenny rather than with the dogs because she's the one who can give him that really stable life that is all he wanted from the beginning when he was in that box with all the other kittens. You know, we haven't talked about Oliver at all, really. I just don't think there's that much there. He's cute. He's a cute character and it's a nice peppy voice performance, I think. But everything around that character is so much more interesting than him, I think. What about you? And that's classic Oliver, isn't it? That's classic Oliver twist. We talked about Basil the Great Mouse Detective. Why do we not get much time alone developing Basil? And that's because that's not how Sherlock Holmes functions. Whereas, yeah, okay, Oliver's the least interesting character in Oliver, but that's always been the case. Fagin and Sykes and Nancy and Dodger have always been the most interesting characters in all of those adaptations. Do you know what's not boring, though, Sam? Do you know what does deserve our attention at long last? I think we've waited long enough to finally properly discuss the songs of Oliver and Company, which, right from that synthy soft rock opening, I was in, I was hooked, but Why Should I Worry is, I'm just going to say, it's not just the best Disney song by a wide margin that we've encountered so far. Might be the greatest song of all time. Might be the best song (laughs) I've ever heard in my entire life. It's so good, isn't it? It is so good. It's on a constant loop in my head. Even while we're recording this, in the back of my mind, it's just, why should I worry? Why should I care? Even though I had no idea what the hell sweet savoir faire meant, I had to Google it afterwards. I mean, it's often on in our house. We sometimes do with Alexa play Why Should I Worry from Oliver and Company, follow up with Alexa play Perfect Isn't Easy from Oliver and Company, and I take the lead on, on the first one, Lid takes the lead on the second one. Nice. It's it's a it's a staple in our kitchen, especially over the last couple of weeks when I've been researching this. I agree, it's probably the best Disney song we've encountered. It's definitely the best Disney like up-tempo song we've encountered so far. I would say, to be honest, easily top 10 personally for me ever disney songs it just blows my mind that this song isn't as well known as it should be because it's such a banger and as we head into the 90s renaissance a lot of the films that i grew up on in that era are full of amazing songs that have rightfully broken through but this deserves that sam this song is such a bop it's so good and it's just the energy of that song of that sequence right at the start of this film i texted you and i was like this is this is incredible. This is amazing. And it has that thing of bare necessities in The Jungle Book. We're at the end. You can just feel them go, do you know what? We just need to play that song again because it's so damn good and we want to send the audience out on the bare necessities. And they do that here as well. You get a reprise of Why Should I Worry with all the rest of Dodger's gang singing along. They all get their moment to sing that song too. That is so much fun. I love it. 
It's like they knew they had a hit. It's in all the trailers. But, yeah, why hasn't it broken through? Is it just because not many people know Oliver and Company? If this exact same song had been sung by the genie in Aladdin, maybe. I don't know what the context would be. Actually, Aladdin. Aladdin could have sung this song in Aladdin. It would fit his character uh, instead of One Jump Ahead at the start of that movie. Would people know it and love it? as much as I do, because we said, oh, we're going to try and do Why Should I Worry at karaoke this weekend. I don't know if they're going to have it. They're going to have Under the Sea, you know? They're going to have a whole new freaking world, but they're not going to (laughs) have Why Should I Worry. I wonder if that's partly a UK thing overall. I didn't grow up in a Billy Joel household, and I don't know if there are many Billy Joel households on this (laughs) This rock. There's one in Sunderland, and you grew up in it. Billy Joel is uber-American. Is this song, is this film bigger in America than it is over here? Do you think it's partly like a just cultural difference thing between the US and the UK? Based on me trying to dig through as much information as I could about it over the last couple of weeks, I don't think it's very big in America either. I just think it's... And we'll get to it in, in the reception section, but it wasn't a flop. It, it was overshadowed. It was overshadowed by what came immediately after. And because it doesn't fit into the version of the Disney Renaissance that Disney have been trying to market for years, that you know you, you, it hasn't got a princess in it, it's not going to be on any of these Disney compilation albums that they put out, it just hasn't persisted. And I should say, because my parents do listen to this podcast, I did not grow up in the Billy Joel household. <laughs> my, my dad would consider that slander, I'm pretty sure. I came to Billy Joel on my own okay. as an adult. <laughs> You're creating your own Billy Joel household. My children will grow up in a Billy Joel household. <laughs> oh man, I'm just thinking about some of the wordplay in this song. Because like, he said the absolutely, positively thing that is Dodger's basically you know. catchphrase. But some of the words that he sings in here, do-wopulation, be-bopulation, oh, it's, that is going to be scratching around in my brain for a long time to come. What do you make of the other songs here? Because I loved the Huey Lewis song at the start. Obviously, it's immediately overshadowed by this insane big Billy mm-hmm. bop. But the Huey Lewis number is a great song in its own right. Totally different to all the other big Huey Lewis and the New songs, which are the same song, just with the lyrics changed. <laughs> it's hit to be square, back in time. Power of power love. Power of love. It's just the same song, just with a different <laughs> it's phrase. It's hit to be square. It's the power of love. Back, back in time. In time. <laughs> Once upon a time in New York City. I mean, it's a great song, but this is a very different Huey Lewis song. Like I said, I can imagine you on a yacht, in your yacht shirt, listening to Once Upon a Time in New York City. It's pretty yacht. It's got it's got that yacht rock vibe to it. Like the songs in, for example, Bambi, or a lot of the songs in The Rescuers we've talked about before, it plays a choric role. It's almost like the voice of the environment, the voice of the spirit of New York. And it really does set up the mythology of New York City, not just through the Once Upon a Time line, but also through its lyrics. Beginnings are contagious there. They're always setting stages there. They're always turning pages there for you. You can do anything in New York. And, you know, like I say, we always sing the Dodger song and the Georgette song in this house. This has always been... It's never been one of the songs that I've always stuck on. But since I rewatched it the other week, it's been running around my head a little bit, especially the bit where it goes... No, Oliver, don't be sad. That's a great bit. Streets of Gold is another great song that, again, suffers from not being Why Should I Worry, which we can't hold against it. But that is another really fun song sang by Ruth Pointer that is another 
80s bop about them making the streets work for them and how they can earn this money, how they can do their little grifts on New Yorkers. That was a really fun sequence as well. Yeah, I guess this is sort of the conceal yourself of Oliver and Company, although while conceal yourself is much too long, don't at me. Streets of Gold is much too short, I think. It only gets like one chorus and one verse, I'm pretty sure. Cut for time, I suppose, because... God, they couldn't have this movie be longer than 70 minutes. (laughs) God, they're just under the wire, a clean 69 minutes. Huge fan of Perfect Isn't Easy, though. I think that's that's up there. Like, if Why Should I Worry is top 10 Disney songs, I think Perfect Isn't Easy is, is still top 20 for me. I love that. I love, God, Bette Midler's performance and all of the all of the howls and all of the vamping that she does. Oh, my God. And, and the animation of the character in that scene as well. Girl, we got work to do. And then she's like slathering makeup over her face. Pass me the paint and glue i love it so much <laughs> she dips her ears in little like powdery things yeah. <laughs> so many great lines in that song so classic and classy we're not talking lassie <laughs> <laughs> oh i love how much you love this it's amazing <laughs> i'm just cackling you can't get a mutt to strut like a show girl no girl you need a pro and then she goes into a oh The commitment from Bette Midler, man. It's unbelievable. I don't even have to wait until next weekend. I'm getting my karaoke performance out of you right now. This is it. Acapella. Live. Okay. I've got a question for you, Ben. I've alluded to it before. Howard Ashman, Mm. the great lyricist who penned the songs for Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, and had a massive impact on the rest of those films as well wrote one song for this movie. Do you know which one it is? I do, because I have the list of songs in front of me here, so I feel right. like I've, I've scuppered your mini quiz. Ah, it would have been a fun quiz, but would you agree then that it's not the one you would expect? It's not very Ashman-y to me. What I think it's Once of... Upon a Time in New York City, the Huey Lewis song, yeah, we should say. <laughs> we should establish that. Yeah, the opening song of the film, which, it, yeah, it doesn't strike me as the most typically Howard Ashman from, from what I know about him and his songwriting style. I guess it has that element of, as we said, it being sung about Oliver, about the character, but that is such a scene-setting song rather than one that I think gets into the specificities of particular character emotions and doesn't have that slightly more Broadway vibe, which is what I really associate mm-hmm. with him. So I think that is surprising. Yeah, and you know we'll get into this in the future, but he is... A couple of things that Howard Ashman is known for is knowing exactly when a song needs to be placed in a film and who needs to sing it. He's a master of the structure. He's a great student of the structure of the Broadway musical. And then I think he's also well-known, or one of the things I most admire him for, is the, the density of his lyrics and the character of his lyrics and the playfulness of it. And Once Upon a Time in New York City doesn't really have any of that, and especially because it's a non-diegetic song, it doesn't feel like it's come from the same place as any of the ones that he would write for those later films. It's good, but I think a lot of the qualities I associate with Ashman are weirdly there in some of the lyrics for Perfect Isn't Easy, for example, which I would more readily think, oh, it's that one, that's got to be the one that Ashman wrote, and it's not. I mean, I'm looking at the list of songs here, and the last song is something called Good Company, and I'm trying to bring to mind what that song is. It's the Jenny song. Oh. (laughs) We've sung it three times already on this podcast. (laughs) Good company, that's what we'll be. 
Yeah, I've blocked it out. It just doesn't stand up next to any of the other songs in this movie. No. So I think if we're talking about the music, obviously all of these songwriters were brought on by Katzenberg because, you know, especially people like Barry Manilow and Dan Hartman, who are proven pop hit makers in the past, he wanted some hit songs and some billboard chart cachet here. But Howard Ashman, he met through his friend David Geffen, who will later become an important part in the Jeffrey Katzenberg story. And Geffen produced Little Shop of Horrors, which was Ashman's musical that he wrote with Alan Menken, who he would later work on Little Mermaid with. So it's all linked in. Uh, Peter Schneider, who is Katzenberg's new vice president of animation. He's, Peter Schneider is Katzenberg's proxy, basically, in the animation studio at this point. Also not very liked by the animators. But he was company manager on Little Shop of Horrors, so he's a Broadway guy as well. And Peter Schneider wasn't a fan of the approach to the music in this, i.e. the approach of getting lots of different songwriters to write effectively pop songs for these songs to sing, because it lacks the sense of continuity that you get from an actual Broadway musical, which typically has one or two songwriters maximum. But I do think that the pop score and the somewhat diverse array of musical styles are well-suited to a modern-day New York City setting because you've got the Broadway musical number, you've got Streets of Gold, which is sort of an R&B, almost New Jack Swing kind of song. You've got Why Should I Worry, which is that Billy Joel, New Yorker, adult contemporary song. And then you've got the smooth, smooth music of Huey Lewis's Once Upon a Time in New York City. So it's not as diverse as the actual musical landscape of New York City at this point in time, which is famously one of the greatest eras You know, the 70s and 80s in New York City is, like, electric. You've got disco, you've got punk, you've got hip-hop. There's a tiny little bit of hip-hop coming out of that guy's speaker, but it's getting there. It's not reflecting the tone of a Broadway musical, but it's reflecting the variety of sounds that you would find in New York in 1988 to an extent. Have we discussed enough how great Why Should I Worry is? (laughs) Uh, Have you got any other points to make? I'm thinking of like Dodger standing on that cement mixer as it it twirls around him like rising up and rising back down. He's on a big cement pipe flying through the sky as well. He's got lots of little lady dogs joining in the chorus and um, everything goes, everything fits. They love me at the Chelsea, they adore me at the Ritz. Ah, why should I worry? <laughs> why should I care? <laughs> that line about the Chelsea and the Ritz, it comes out of nowhere and then they just move past it really swiftly, but it's just its own little nugget in the middle of the song. And then at the end when all the other dogs come in and they're all strutting down the street. We've got to mention, by the way, because we'll get to if we don't peg is here from lady and the tramp uh, i think the bulldog is here from lady and the tramp there's a dog that looks a lot like pongo from 101 dalmatians i think jock is there as well there's a lot of other disney dogs in this sequence and in streets of gold joining in with the choruses and what was the other film that peg turns up in from lady and the tramp oh she's in the pet shop in 101 dalmatians yes. so there's a bit of a disney dog cinematic universe where maybe these are the descendants of one another because these are all set in very different periods in time, so maybe it's the Peg dynasty that we're seeing <laughs> from Lady and the Tramp to Dalmatians to this movie. Before we get on to the action finale of this film, do we count any of these characters as Disneyversity legends? Because, my word, really, Dodger should be a Disneyversity legend. But he's so prominent in the film, yeah. and yet at the same time, in the past, we've overruled that because of it being a lesser-known film 
And yeah. Dodger is so cool that I feel like I don't know if we can deny but, him a place on this list. Because the previous time that we did that was with Henwen, who was more prominent than most Disney versity legends, yeah. but not as prominent as Dodger. Still a very much a side character, yeah. Oh, who cares? Yeah, put put Dodger in. Do it. I feel like even if we denied Dodger a place on the list, he would just strut in with a big chain yeah, of sausages his way there. and a pair of sunnies, and and we can't deny that. Oh, should we make it official? Is Dodger a Disney yeah. versity legend? Give him the fanfare. <laughs> Welcome, Dodger. <laughs> I do, I do think though, if there was one more, maybe Louis the hot dog guy. <laughs> That's just for me. That can just be for me. That's in your own personal canon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh man. Let's end this supersized discussion of this extremely streamlined film with the final act of this movie, as with Basil, goes all out on the 3D effects, and we have what to me felt like a Disney-ish version of the Temple of Doom minecart chase. They head down into the subway. You've got Sykes's car driving along the tracks. You have the dogs basically driving like a motorbike slash shopping cart thing. <laughs> I didn't quite get my head around what exactly was happening there. But it's a, it's a chase to stop Sykes, to rescue Jenny. And yeah, it's this like big subway chase that's part the end of Mission Impossible, part Temple of Doom, and really fast and exciting. And yeah, all of these bits of 3D shots to really get this sense of speed, of urgency, of also just showing off this really dynamic, at the time, very new animation. Yeah, the action sequences in these films have definitely really ramped up since... Basil, a great mouse detective, and then this. And it's, it's the advent of the computer technology that's allowing them to do that. I think it's also the um, contemporaneous like action movie sensibilities starting to creep in, which we saw happening a little bit with the rescuers. Um, but yeah, these just keep getting... Well, they don't keep getting more exciting. I still think Basil is a high watermark and probably will be for a while. I really love that. I thought this was more exciting than Basil, oh, really? to be fair. Yeah, I thought it was. And I think partly because it did feel like it was threading that line to bits of Disney history, because I wrote in my notes, it's like what they were going for with Cruella's car, but done to the max with those 3D effects, with the sense of space that you get from Sykes's car. You know what I would have liked a bit more of, and this is touching on a maybe a different problem with the film as well, in the Dalmatians finale and in the Great Mouse Detective finale, we'll get that trope that I said I really like, which is when the villain who has kind of pretensions to civility loses the mind and just kind of goes crazy and gets incredibly aggressive and vicious and we don't really get that moment with Sykes. He's kind of a one-note character. He's cool and vaguely menacing but i would have liked a moment towards the end of this where we kind of see the guy underneath i want vincent d'onofrio kingpin is what i want here because that's basically what sykes is he's like he's an enormous thug who has this veneer of sophistication and affability and beneath you know he's breaking people's fingers and putting them in cement shoes and all of that and maybe we could have got a bit more of that coming through towards the climax of this film to give him an edge that he doesn't quite have in the pantheon of Disney villains. Yeah, it feels like in this final chase, the car basically becomes a proxy for Sykes himself. You get less of that physical presence of Sykes, Mm. and it's all about the car rather than him. Yeah, and that's where the money's going as well. That's where the cool computer animation's going. I think it's because Sykes and Oliver is such a good villain as well, especially the... um, 
Oliver Reed version in the musical. That's a great performance. Uh, you, you want a bit more from Sykes, I think. Do you know what shocked me, though? The fact that at the climax of this fight is Sykes's car, with Sykes inside, getting hit by the subway train and exploding. A villain goes down in a hail of... Well, he explodes. He blows up. He goes out in a fireball, having been hit by a train. Yes, long live the Dark Age. His dogs get electrocuted as well, like visibly get electrocuted on the subway tracks, which is pretty harsh. Yeah, Sykes proper like Rasputinian fate here because that train will have taken his head clean off and then he explodes. (laughs) (laughs) That might be the most brutal Disney villain death we've had in terms of like what we know for a fact has happened to this character i'm sure ratigan was splattered against the streets of london and that won't have been pretty but like (laughs) we see this guy get hit head on by a train yeah not only do we have like full-on death of a villain at the end of this film we also then end the film mostly on like a weird sex joke (laughs) between tito and georgette uh Mm. so the the resolution of the film oliver is gonna stay with jenny because they are, as we've established, good company. Uh, They go and have like a nice birthday dinner at Jenny's house. But Georgette is like, hey, Tito, you've been like coming after me this whole film. How about you come up to my bedroom and we, uh, you know, see what happens up there. And then he escapes in this weird little outfit that she's put him in. This weird little like role play outfit. (laughs) I was like, just another sense of 80s Disney of just a heightened level of danger and death but also a little bit of sex relative to the extremely chaste Disney scale of things, but it's in there. It's a good outfit, though. (laughs) Tito in his little sailor hat with his jacket on. That's pretty sweet. But I feel like we should end this discussion, Sam, in the way that the film ends, by realising the only thing you can do is just return to Why Should I Worry? Because that's the finale. They're just like, let's do the song again. And I think we should do the song again. So, Why Why Should should I I Worry? Why should I care? Yeah. I may not have a dime, come on, Ben, but I got, got street savoir faire. The rhythm of the city, but once you get it down, you can own this town. Just tell us when. Imagine a zoom out of Manhattan, counting down to the 69th minute, and we're out. We are done. Okay, now we've had a chance to rest our voices because we've done a lot of singing in this episode. We always end up singing in these podcasts, <laughs> but especially on this one with the absolute banger rate of this film. Let's stop singing and continue talking. That brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the dark, weird stuff that didn't make the film. Now, there's always varying levels (laughs) of Discarded for these Disney features. Sam, this is very loosely based on Dickens. There is a bit of Oliver in there. There is a lot of Oliver not in here. Let's not get too into the nitty-gritty of how different this is from Oliver Twist, because that would be an entire podcast in itself. But come on, dig up some of the darkest depths that didn't make it here. And were there things that they planned for this film originally that they then cut? Yeah, well, that's where it gets interesting, because... So I would say maybe about the first half of this is actually pretty close to Oliver Twist, like up until when he gets adopted, and then... So in in Oliver Twist, he tries to pick the pocket of a rich guy called Mr. Brownlow, I think. And then he takes him in and then 
I think like Sykes and Dodger and some of that lot come and, and kidnap him back. And that kind of happens in this movie. And it's at that point that it starts to really diverge. And that's because most of the third act of Oliver Twist is about murder. Because we've got Sykes, who in the original is... Well, we don't even have the character of Nancy mm-hmm. in, in this There's no Nancy movie. equivalent, who would be a friend and a confidant to Oliver, who's kind of older than Oliver isn't she? She's like yeah. not a kid, but she's not really old enough to be his mum. So she's kind of the member of the gang who is more sympathetic towards Oliver, because remember in Oliver Twist, Fagan is not really a nice guy at all. And she kind of helps him escape, and Sykes kills her for that and for other reasons. And that drives the last act of the story, because it's mainly about, especially in the musical film and play mainly about Sykes trying to escape from the police who are after him for that murder. So we're not doing any of that, especially because that would kind of involve the human Bill Sykes going out with a dog, Nancy. (laughs) But there were intentions in that direction. So there's a character in this, in the drafts, a dog, who is sometimes called Nancy and is sometimes called Tina and was intended to be voiced by Tina Turner. Oh, no, we should have got Tina Turner in this movie. That was the one thing that could make it even more 80s. It would have been simply the best. (laughs) I can't believe you went there. And she would have been a dog from the gang who has this kind of motherly relationship with Oliver, and she would have had some sexual tension with one of the Dobermans. So instead of it being Sykes and Nancy, it would have been Sykes's dog and Nancy. And she would have been, in some versions, killed, in some versions, just maimed, which would fuel the final act of this movie and fuel Oliver's motivation in the final act of this movie in which he was originally intended to be a more active character. And it seems like this character changed over time and became Rita as her role was dialed back. And there's remnants of it. I think Rita is the member of the gang who's the most sympathetic to Oliver. She's the one who wants Dodger to let him return. She tries to convince Dodger to let him return to Jenny. So it's been massively reduced, but it's kind of still there. And she's certainly... She actually she kind of does have a one or two lines that imply some kind of tension with the Dobermans but it's not really there because that's one of the darkest elements of that story. I know that in the version uh, my partner did when she was at school, they just had Nancy and Sykes get happily married at the end. (laughs) I don't know if that's what they did in your version. Yeah, I can't remember what they did, but they definitely lost the murder plot. I think it was, again, I don't know, Bill Sykes died on the way to his home planet. (laughs) Something like that. Who knows? But yeah, there's elements of this which are adapted more from the musical than from actual dickens like fagan being more sympathetic that's something that really started in in the musical and the film and sykes kidnaps oliver in the climax of the musical he does not kidnap oliver in the book um for his like escape he kidnaps oliver as like a hostage during his escape in the film in the similar way to how he kidnaps jenny in this movie so it's maybe more adapting because the, the musical is more famous especially in america than the novel and in fact this is an interesting discarded because i think this might be the first movie we've covered where the original source is better known than the disney version like we're talking about how the original oliver and different from the disney version but actually most people are probably thinking about it the other way around and that's how you experienced it right it's like oh this is how they're doing figure and this is how they're doing this 
the process of adaptation is a lot more foregrounded here, especially for us in retrospect, because unlike most Disney source texts, it has not been eclipsed by the original. I think especially the title doesn't help with that either, because Oliver and Company kind of sounds like its own thing. The and company, the emphasis of that, really differentiates it from the Dickens. For a long time, I heard people talking about Oliver and Company as a Disney film and didn't realise that that was an adaptation of Oliver because Oliver is a relatively common name and the and company, I don't even know what you'd apply that to, I guess Fagin's gang in the Dickens, but yeah, it, it doesn't feel like it connects massively to that original telling. So another aspect of the book that's changed here, which I think is really interesting, is that in the Oliver Twist story, Oliver turns out to be the heir to a big inheritance and that is always an interesting aspect of that story because it means that it implies that the reason why Oliver is the only good character in the underworld of this story, it's breeding, right? It's like Oliver's the only decent character in in the gang on the streets of London because he's not actually a working class person, he's actually the heir to this fortune and threads of that run throughout a lot of Dickens's stuff despite the fact that he is satirizing the conditions that these people were forced to live under in London but there's still that elitist edge to it there whereas here that's the myth of New York City the myth of New York City is the myth of working people working hard and that's what Billy Joel's songs are about for the most part that's what Ralph Bakshi's New York movies are about for the most part and that works better if you have this character who is genuinely underprivileged but there was going to be a version of this where he turns out to be a rare expensive well-bred cat and that's why Sykes wants him in the final act which would have nodded more to the origins of Oliver in the story but that doesn't make it to the movie and I think the themes of the movie, such as there are any, really, are stronger for that, because it really feels like he's had to suffer in order to get to where he is at the end. Yeah, I like that this film essentially takes Oliver as a jumping-off point and then just sort of shrugs and just says, we need to do what's best for our own movie rather than trying to incorporate other bits of the Oliver Twist story. Just feels like a good way to go. It means we got this fun, very Disney adventure. Well, I think it's really clear, Sam that you love this movie, but what about the critics at the time? Did this get a good reception when it first was released? Not really, no. What? <laughs> Unfortunately. Ooh. Got some quotes. Um, Peter Travers from People magazine says, no It's too slight to rank with such Disney groundbreakers as Pinocchio and Fantasia. It's more on the good fun level of Lady and the Tramp and 101 Dalmatians, which sounds like you're splitting hairs, because those are all very well-liked movies. Gene Siskel, not a fan. He's, Gene Siskel hasn't been a fan of many of these recent Disney movies. Measured against the legacy of classics, it's not up to the highest standard. The narrative is interrupted too often with songs. He didn't like the songs. How can you not like the songs? They're the best bit. Uh, the New York Times says that animation is somewhat better than the usual stuff seen on Saturday morning television, but not much. Ooh. Harsh. I think the animation is good in this one. The character animation is great. It's got a very distinctive style. All the kind of pushing the boundaries of the 3D stuff, the painterly backgrounds. I like it, man. I think it's good. So would you believe that 
And then, you know, so Rotten Tomatoes obviously is going to have a lot of more recent reviews as well as the ones that, from the time. But this movie has the worst Rotten Tomatoes score of any film we've seen so far. That is wild. That's because not enough people have reviewed The Sword and the Stone. Sorry, Stoneheads, you're going to come at us again. Yeah, that is that's so wildly off. Is there any way you could just publish a review on empire.com you don't even have to put it on the homepage or anything just have it there in the background of the website send it to rotten tomatoes and bump that score up a little bit it's at 50 percent at the minute so robin hood had 54 and cauldron had 55 and they're the only rotten movies that we've looked at there's only eight films with a rotten score and rotten tomatoes in the disney canon and this is one of them, and it's so far the lowest one. There is an official Empire review of Oliver and Company, and it breaks my heart, Sam. It's a two-star review. Oh, come on! You need to adjust that, man. <laughs> it's a very short review. There's there's very little to it. Lacks the classic Disney charm that works for adults as well as kids. I feel like we disprove that, Sam. Our existence disproves that. Well, that's interesting that it just wasn't... I think you get the sense that, oh, the ones that aren't a big deal aren't a big deal because they aren't good. And this, for me, totally shows that some of the more forgotten ones are gems. Proper little gems. So it's also worth mentioning that a lot of the reception of this movie, a lot of the reviews of this movie foreground the fact that it was released on the same day, and this has never happened before, on the same day as another major animated movie, The Land Before Time. Oh, they got bluthed again. They got bluthed, baby. So, for example, Dave Kerr from the Chicago Tribune reviewed them both in one article, and he said that Oliver and Company is impoverished, technically and emotionally. He says that the thin, indifferently realised Oliver and Company suggests that much of the magic has left Disney, and Don Bluth's The Land Before Time, a cartoon feature with the refined technique and emotional force of a classic, points to where that magic has gone. So really pushing this narrative, which obviously Bluth and, and the studio will have been pushing as well, that, oh, these are all the good guys from Disney, they're here making these classic movies. So he said, Land Before Time is as handsome and honest as an animated feature as any produced since Walt Disney's death. It may even be the best. Wow, so the best animated movie after Walt Disney died, they're saying, is The Land Before Time. They they strike me as just wildly different features, right? Because Land Before Time yeah. does have that epic sweep. It is leaning into those coming-of-age, death-of-a-parent little character trying to go on this big adventure through a big bad world. It has that like old Disney style to it. But Oliver and Company, I think what's so fun about it is that it is such a distinct moment in time of Disney doing big 80s cheese, and that it is, for the most part, light and fun and bouncy and vibrant, which maybe at the time just felt like them chasing trends and not doing something that felt timeless. As you said, it's very timely rather than timeless, whereas Land Before Time maybe is more timeless. A lot of time going on. But in hindsight, the place that Oliver and Company now holds is a very specific one and a very enjoyable one. It's been a while since I've watched Land Before Time. I don't have very warm feelings towards that movie or an American tale, to be quite honest. They are very technically accomplished movies and they're very historically significant movies. But I think, almost ironically, they haven't aged as well as Oliver and Company, which is it's still fun and kind of cool, even if it's in a retro way. Whereas those... Bluth movies 
feel schmaltzy in a way that animated movies really aren't anymore. And they're schmaltzier in their way than the classic Disney movies as well. And yeah, I just I, I, I never feel like sitting down and watching The Land Before Time, whereas Oliver and Company stick it on. But what do you think audiences felt in 1988? Well, I am going to guess that this got absolutely trampled in a dinosaur stampede at the box office. Basil got outdone by an American tale. I think this will have been trounced, sadly. Am I correct? Well, on that opening weekend, Land Before Time was the number one movie in America. It grossed $7.5 million. Oliver was number four. It grossed $4 million. But by the end of its run, Oliver had actually surpassed it. Oliver made $53 million in total, and Land Before Time only made $48 million. Um, and it, it seems to have beat it worldwide as well. I think Oliver is 100 mil worldwide and Land Before Time is 85 million. So That's interesting because it feels like the legacy of Land Before Time lives a lot larger than the legacy of Oliver and Company. I wonder how why this one had legs in a way that maybe Land Before Time didn't as much. Well, it might have been the stars and the music which was what Katzenberg was banking on and you know which would later prove to be a big draw in for example his magnum opus Shrek um <laughs> i think disney was getting a lot of cred at this point as well i think one reason for the big success of both of these movies is that they are coming out in the wake of who framed roger rabbit which has really raised the profile of animation as a medium for adults that came out just a couple of months before a Disney production, but the animation wasn't done by Walt Disney Animation Studios, which was a bit of an insult to Walt Disney Animation Studios, but they were used to being insulted by that point. So there's a sense that the public, and in particular teens and adults, were amenable to Disney animation as long as it had something to offer to their demographic. And I wonder if, maybe in a kind of superficial way, Oliver and Company was seen to have a bit more to offer to their demographic. That's obviously what it's going for, I think it does still feel very much like a children's movie in a way that, for example, Toy Story and Shrek don't quite. Whatever it was, it worked. Yeah. Okay then, Sam. Now is the time. Give us your star rating for Oliver and Company. How would you rate this film? Other than obvious five-star masterpiece. I mean, it is it's great, isn't it? I think it's it's properly, like, from my gut, from how much I enjoy it, it's, it's a four-star movie. I have such a good time with it every time I watch it. So it has its issues. It's very slight. I think the story isn't really that interesting and the character of Oliver isn't really that interesting. As I've said, I wanted more time with those relationships. But I think also the benefit of it being short is that those issues don't have enough time to become problematic, don't have enough time to impact my enjoyment of it. It's got a great texture. It's got a great feel and I just want to spend more time in this world. And, you know, spoilers for Last and Legacy, this movie never got a sequel. I kind of wish it did, because this isn't an unimpeachable classic in the sense that a sequel could, like, tarnish it, could maybe portray the characters in a light that jars with the original as well, in the way that The Fox and the Hound 2 kind of did. All it would be is just extending this vibe a little bit further and letting me go off with Dodger and the gang into the traffic of New York and just hanging out with them a bit more as they hopefully sing that song and other equally good <laughs> songs. I, I, I wish this did have a sequel, even if it was kind of crappy, because I need more of these guys. I am with you. I would go four stars on this film. The songs are the best thing in it, but the songs are so great. And I think it just really taps into the energy and the vibrancy 
the modernity and that sense of 80s New York is so alluring. It's just really well done. I do think, the, as you say, the film itself is quite slight. The characterization is fairly slight. But it's so much fun. And it gets in and it gets out. And it leaves you with absolute earworm songs. And having kind of expected very little from this movie, I just had a blast with it. I think I'm really going to remember this one. And I'm very jealous of your Oliver and Company t-shirt. <laughs> okay, then, since you've teed us up, let's go to the final section of the show, Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. And in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. Or is there, in the case of Oliver and Company? Because I, like I said, had barely heard of this movie. I don't think I've seen any other element of pop cultural impact from this film other than the film itself. Yeah, I had to dig deep with this one. This is the one where I've come closest to just giving up and saying, oh yeah, this this one's just a Disney movie. <laughs> but, but there are things. So, got a couple. I'll go chronological order. There was a video game, yes. again. Was it a platformer? Hmm. I would say maybe Arcade is the closest. It wasn't literally in an arcade, it was on the PC, but it was very, it's kind of like quite repetitive, points-based gameplay. There's four levels. The first one, you're walking through the street and picking up hot dogs, and you've, <laughs> there's a bit where you can step on a bottle of mustard and squirt Louis the hot dog guy in the face. Yes. So that was really fun. Obviously, the, the Why Should I Worry song is... Play- well, the, okay, there's like a, a sort of chiptune version of Why Should I Worry, which plays on the title sequence, but not all the way through the game, which I think is a bit of a missed opportunity. The second level, Fagan is throwing biscuits at you, and you've got to just grab the biscuits. It's very straightforward. The third level... So I beat those two levels. I was playing this game, and this I'm doing well in terms of like how far I can get through these old Disney games because they're very, very difficult usually. Level three is you are in Georgette's room, and you're Oliver, and all the other dogs are messing up the room, and you've got to clean up the room before Winston comes in. And I just, I, I'm not sure if there was like a button that I didn't have on my keyboard that I was supposed to be using to clean things up. I could not figure out what I was doing. <laughs> Winston was just kicking my ass left, right, and center in that, in that level. But the art is cool. It's it's really good graphics for its day, and it, it captures that feel a little bit. So that was fun. Okay, so this next one's weird. Okay. So there was Oliver and Company. Like a lot of these movies, seems to have been quite big in France. There is a fourteen-year-old French pop star called Anne Messon, who seems to just go by Anne a lot of the time. So let's just call her Anne. She released a single called Oliver, which went to number three in France based on this movie. And it has like a green screen video where she's superimposed on the scenes from the movie. And how does it go? It goes, Oliver, oh, Oliver, je ferai de l'allemand. I don't know. What's what's ca- le chat? I don't, I don't speak French. But it definitely goes. Oliver, oh Oliver. I love you made up French, so it's just like French gobbledygook. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's that's almost how it goes. So that's interesting in and of Hang itself. When is this happening? What what era are we talking? This is, this is at the time of the. This is like 1989. Okay. I went down the wormhole on YouTube with this song because as soon as I searched for it on YouTube, I just kept finding different performances of this song on different French TV shows with this girl. So I managed to find 
12 separate performances, <laughs> all from like the same two year window of this 14 year old girl singing this song, well, lip syncing this song on completely different shows with different backdrops and different hosts, but every single time she was accompanied by the same four costumed characters, Oliver, Dodger, Tito, and a very, very strange-looking Francis, the bulldog, <laughs> doing the exact same choreography. It's so surreal. I was just watching every time I opened a new one, and it was exactly the same dance with exactly the same costumes, but in a different set. I was just getting more and more hysterical, just screaming my head off. It's utterly mad. She performed the song at the opening of Euro Disney. Amazing. So do you think... They were just like, we want an extra French song. Was this like a Disney-approved thing? Was this an extra push yeah, for definitely. it in France? They were like, we'll get this French song, as well as all the Billy Joel and the Huey Lewis and all that. Let's stick in a French song to really hit it yeah. over our audience. I don't know if it was in the movie, but you know, Disney do that a lot. They do like... I was reading about this because we don't talk about Bruno was number one. So I was like, has there ever been a number one Disney song before? And the answer is yes, but it's a cover of Suspicious Minds by Gareth Gates, which was attached to, but not featured in the movie Lilo and Stitch. What? So I feel like it's kind of that thing. What? It's like from and inspired by the movie Oliver and that Company. That is insane. That's crazy. Was that number one in the UK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, <laughs> it was backed with a duet with Will Young, it was like a no double way. A side, and that's the big deal, right? Gareth and Will coming together to sing whatever the hell song it was, but the the other A side was Suspicious Minds, which technically makes it a Disney song. Uh, it doesn't take off Bruno's shine for me. Anyway, we're, I'm getting increasingly manic. Um, <laughs> so yes, it was definitely Disney affiliated because the video had all the clips in and the costumes are the exact same ones that they used at Disneyland, which by the way is the only Disneyland presence this movie's ever had is some occasional costumes in 1989. And I feel like we're almost at the point of Euro Disney slash Disneyland Paris opening in the timeline. Are we, what, a couple of years away from that? Because this year is the 30th anniversary. So, what, it must be 92, actually. 1992. But this is still close enough to the release of Oliver and Company that Anne could sing that song at the opening, (laughs) backed by the exact same four dog costumes. Okay, so one and a half things to go. I don't normally bring up stuff like House of Mouse, which is the cartoon from the 2000s that featured just loads of cameos from Disney animated characters, because if I did, I'd mention it in every episode. I thought this one was kind of special. There's an episode of House of Mouse, which is about a club where Mickey Mouse is the proprietor and different Disney characters give performances, sort of like the Muppet Show with Disney characters. Um, Dodger leads a band called the pet shop dogs <laughs> yeah, like 80s, yeah. There we go. the music does not sound anything like that of the pet shop boys okay. i think that's just the name so uh, which is disappointing obviously so the band is comprised of dodger lead singer and on back and vocals you've got tito francis and DeSoto, the evil doberman from oliver and company you've also got jock from lady and the tramp you've got patch and Rowley, the dalmatians and you've got napoleon and lafayette from the aristocats and they all sing a song called everybody wants to be a whoa not dog they just went with a wolf sound yeah they, they just wolf and so that they each take turns doing the wolf so it's like everybody wants to be a whoa because of the only that knows where it's that is bizarre that is <laughs> such a weird idea just change it to dog 
there's so many like non-secateurs there so they're called the pet shop dogs but they don't sound like the pet shop boys and they're singing everybody wants to be a dog but they don't say dog and this is in an animated <laughs> show where mickey runs a popular club yeah a nightclub yeah sort of a cabaret situation <laughs> Okay, so that is basically everything. That's all of the appearances these characters have ever made in Disney-affiliated media. But I just want to, I feel like it would be a good way to end this by talking about something that was almost part of the lasting legacy of Oliver and Company. So one of the ideas in development while Oliver was wrapping up, and I know this because this was one of the films pitched as a possibility to Howard Ashman. So they gave Howard Ashman a list of movies he could work on after Oliver and Company. One of them was The Little Mermaid. One of them was Mary Poppins Comes Back, which sounds like <laughs> it could use a snappier title and be made 20 years later, but they'll get there. And then the other one was Doofus. And this is in the Howard Ashman documentary that's on Disney+. Plus. So I'm like, Doofus? I have, I have watched that documentary and I don't remember Doofus. What is Doofus? <laughs> you just see it written down on a piece of paper. So I immediately Googled Doofus, and there's lots of other people on the internet saying, I've just been watching this Howard <laughs> Ashman documentary. What's Doofus? And it's spelled D-U-F-U-S, which is not how I would spell Doofus. No, I'd go D-O-O-F-U-S. Yeah. But, and this is crucial because this is how it ties into Oliver and Company. This was a Michael Eisner pitch. This was his own idea. And it was going to be Catcher in the Rye with Dogs in New York. What? That's insane. So, I mean, as mad as that is on its own, and how the hell that would work as any kind of movie, let alone an animated children's movie, and also, why is it called Doofus? (laughs) So there's, there's lots of questions. There's lots of questions here. But what this immediately says to me is that we've done Sherlock Holmes with Mice, now we're doing Oliver and Company with dogs. And then the next pitch is Catcher in the Rye with dogs. And we know that, obviously, Little Mermaid was a huge hit. And it wasn't always their plan to spend 10 years doing fairy tale musicals. But that's what they ended up doing because Little Mermaid was a huge hit. If Oliver and Company had made a few more tens of millions of dollars, would Disney have just become, for at least the next decade, a company that adapts classic novels with dogs? <laughs> It feels like that's the way that we're going. We can either do princess musicals or classic literature with dogs, and whichever one of these movies grosses the most, that's going to be what we do for the next 10 years. Oh, what could have been? What other classic literature could have had a dog plot? Because it doesn't have to be like anything fantastical or even anything that old. If we're doing Catcher in the Rye, it could have been like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with dogs or the like great Woofsby On the Road with dogs, <laughs> The Bell Jar. I'm just thinking of, like, contemporaries to Salinger, you know? Yeah, wow. Oh, man. Well, we were robbed. We could have had an entire Disney dog universe, although we kind of had had that between Lady and the Tramp and 101 Dalmatians. If it's got a peg cameo, it's officially a Disney dog movie. But anyway, okay, on this supersized episode of Disneyversity, because we just couldn't rein it in about this movie, that is it for this week's class, and also pretty much a wrap on The Dark Age, which has actually been a really fun era. Sam, I've loved exploring these eight films with you. It's been so much fun. 
That means, as usual, our next episode from here is going to be a study group looking back on the past eight films, exploring how Disney changed through the 70s and 80s, and we'll be setting the stage for the blockbuster era to come, the 90s Disney Renaissance. This is basically another bangers era. This is all the movies that Sam and I grew up on. I can't wait to get into those. I've been so excited for that for so long. Uh, On the study group episode, we'll also be ranking the Dark Age movies and updating our overall rankings of the Walt Disney Animation Studios canon so far, so do tune into that. It does also mean, though, that we'll be on a little break while we get things moving on the next set of episodes. This is going to be a big show-stopping era, and we have some potentially big show-stopping plans in place, so we're going to take a little bit of time to try and pull those off and, and get something really special for you guys. But be assured that when we're back in business, you will know it. We'll be kicking things off with 1989's The Little Mermaid. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode and this latest run of the show, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Spread the word. Tell a friend if you know someone who loves Disney or is doing their own Disney rewatch. Please do tell them about the show. And if you fancy dropping us a little review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, or you can now, as we said, rate us on Spotify... We'll take you on a Dodger-approved tour of New York City, complete with a string of sausages you can wear around your neck. Check out our episode notes on Instagram, and follow us on Twitter, both of those are at Disneyversity, and we'll be back before you know it. But for now, Sam, I think we need to go and sort out our karaoke list for next weekend. A string of songs from Oliver, but mostly songs from Oliver and Company. It's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Why should I worry? Why, Why should, should I care? I can't, we can't, we can't start that again. Save it. <laughs> Save it for the booth. Save it for Saturday. Bye. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.